0: game over there Uh, and uh, this particular game there was a goal scored as they don't often get scored because it's a bit like soccer their uh, goals are a bit scarce Uh, and uh, this particular time uh, this goalie let this goal go through apparently to much of the disgust of the commentator he sort of said, uh, oh, that's a, that's a dreadful mistake. That's a that's a fundamental basic mistake by the goalie. I don't know why the goalie, he shouldn't be playing uh, in the Olympics if he's going to make a, a fundamental mistake like that. And he went on, this poor guy feeling obviously he didn't hear any of that, but he would have felt pretty rotten if he did. Uh, and uh, it was going to cost him the game. Uh, and anyway, I think they did lose, but I don't know we can blame the goalie as such. But I also remember reading some years ago uh, about a, a North American ice hockey goalie who uh, said, w- how would you like a job that when you make a mistake, a red light goes on and 18,000 people boo? And uh, so that's, that's what he had to contend with. Now, I'm going to talk about mistakes today. That's what I want to talk about. There are all sorts of mistakes, of course. All right. I've got a book here called uh, The World's Greatest Mistakes. Uh, but anyway, and I also remember a pastor telling me way, way back in the beginning of uh, uh, my sort of pastorship, as it were, uh, he said, uh, this was his words, Daryl, the biggest mistake a pastor can make is to make a mistake. Uh, ooh, okay, so uh, the definition of a mistake in my dictionary says this, an action, a decision, a choice, judgment or statement that produces an unwanted and unintentional result caused by poor reasoning, carelessness, Insufficient knowledge, lack of consideration, etc. Now, some mistakes, of course, are are not all that consequential. This particular book called The World's Greatest Mistakes, actually it's quite old, and I think we could add quite a bit to this. Uh, the, The particular introduction here says this about the book. Gathered together within these covers is the great galaxy of mistakes, mishaps and misfortunes ever assembled. Some are simple, humorous cases of ordinary people, those errors of judgment which otherwise would be totally forgotten. Others are remarkable instances of total mismanagement. There's also a more serious side to this book. Foretold here are the stories of mistakes so monumental that they have irrevocably altered the course of history. They are mistakes that have cost dearly in money, honour and human life. Now, I want to talk about from the Bible about that, but just in the meantime, just a few little examples of people's mistakes. I read here about a a legal firm who sent flowers to an associate upon the opening of a new offices on the other side of town. And through some mix-up mistake, the card which the the new offices received, uh, the floral arrangement, read deepest sympathy. When the florist was informed of his mistake, he let out a cry of alarm oh no then the flowers that went to the funeral said congratulations on your new location (laughs) now there are many humorous uh, blunders and bloopers that people make i've got a few here from a church notice board now these are some examples on a church notice board don't let worry get you down and give you anxiety let the church help Weight watchers will meet at 7pm. Please use large double doors at the side. <laughs> Very nice, is it? Another one on the church notice board. At the evening meeting next Sunday, the sermon topic will be what is hell? Come early and listen to our choir. <laughs> our young people are saving aluminium cans, bottles and other items to be recycled. Proceeds will be used to cripple children. A little more subtle, that one, isn't it? (laughs) Anyway, here's another one. One day, a guy called Sam Jones got $100 too much in his pay envelope. Uh, Or maybe paid into his account online nowadays, no doubt. Anyway, he got $100 too much. And he didn't say a word to anybody. During the week, the paymaster, the person in charge of the money, noticed his mistake and on the next payday, he deducted $100. Sam went up to the paymaster and said, Excuse me, sir, but I'm $100 short this week. And the paymaster said, You didn't complain last week. And Sam came back, No, sir. I don't mind overlooking one mistake, but when it happens twice, then it's time to say something. <laughs> All right, so there are lots and lots of things that we can find a bit funny and some are far more serious, of course. I mean, in here was the Titanic and, and decisions that are made about that and the Martians have landed and, uh, uh, and all sorts of things, selling the Empire State Building to someone who was prepared to buy it, uh, some, a, club, t- a golf club that sold its own golf course. Uh, all these sort of say st- st- stupid things in some cases but quite serious in others. But here is a really serious one and this is important and, and, it, and, it's, and it's fundamental in Genesis chapter 3, and you know it fairly well, but we'll we'll dwell a little bit on it uh, because uh, this has uh, affected the world ever since, and is still affecting the world, obviously. So Genesis chapter 3 and verse 1. Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord had made. In the Hebrew, there's a little play on words which we don't get in the English. If you go back to the previous verse, the last verse of chapter 2, It says, they, both Adam and Eve, were naked. The word naked there is a Hebrew word, arom, A-R-O-M, arom. And it means basically childlike innocence. It's not necessarily not wearing clothes. It's just an innocent state. They were not complicated. It was just simple life in the garden. And they didn't have all the other complexities of life. And so the word there is arom for childlike innocence and simplicity. But when you come to the next verse, the verse 1 of chapter 3, now the serpent was more subtle. The Hebrew word is A-R-U-M, just a slight difference, but it actually means crafty, deceitful, sneaky. So we've gone from childlike innocence of the people in the garden which the Lord had set up to this outsider who is sneaky and crafty. And we read here, and he said unto the woman. I have to ask the question, you know. I wonder what she was doing here, chatting away to the devil. You know, uh, the Bible doesn't sort of uh, uh, encourage that sort of thing. It gives no place to the devil, the Bible says. And yet she's having a conversation in the garden. And the moment we've had starting a conversation, as it were, or allowing a little bit of an opportunity for some other thoughts and ideas and situations to to creep in, well, it's a disaster. It's, that's a mistake in itself. And we read here that the devil decides to sort of quote a little bit of a scripture, maybe. He says, hath God said you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? Now the devil does that. It's never usually obviously wearing a, you know, a a red costume and a pitchfork. It's usually more subtle than that. It's more sneaky than that. And quite often it's mixed with an idea of, well, God's involved and the Scripture's a little bit involved. God didn't start that way. The devil started that way. You shall not eat of every tree of the garden. Is that what God said? What did God say? Go back to chapter 2 and verse 16. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat. So, in fact, he didn't start off with the negative, oh, we're going to restrict you. We're going to be unreasonable here. God's commandment was, I'm giving you everything. Here it is. However, but there is one restriction of the tree. This is verse 17. Of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, thou shalt not eat of it. For in the day thou eatest, thou shalt surely die. So back to chapter 3 again. The devil says, introducing this subject, for good reason, of course, he wanted to undermine Adam and Eve. That's the whole principle here. And the and we hear about the distractions and all the things that can undermine us in, in our walk in the Lord uh, from Brother Michael. And he starts off, you shall not eat of every tree of the garden. And that's not the way God started at all. But that's the slant that the devil puts on it to make it sound unreasonable and restrictive and you're missing out. You're not getting everything here. Life isn't as the way it should be. Why is God so miserable? Why is God uh, uh, putting this upon you? So he starts off that way. And, of course, the woman sucked into this. She should have said, get lost, instantly. In fact, she shouldn't have been there in the first place. But anyway, she should said, get lost. And the woman said unto the serpent, and she starts to sort of explain this. We made of the fruit of the trees of the garden. That's not what God said. She admitted a word. You know what the word is? Freely. The devil immediately makes it sound like, uh, well, God's being restricted, and Eve goes along with it. She leaves out the word freely. There was an abundance for them. They didn't need any other tree. They had as much as they needed, of course. And so she leaves it out. That's one of the sins and mistakes of mankind, omitting from God's word. And then we go verse 3, but the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat of it, neither shall you touch it. No, no. Find that in the Bible. No, it I don't suppose you want to particularly touch it, but she, she added that. She made it again sound more restrictive. So she added to the word of God. She took out the word freely and added a restriction. I can't even touch it. God won't even let me go anywhere near it. Life's very difficult here in the garden. She's already got this thought implanted. And then she says, and God said, lest you die. God never said, lest you die. God said, in the day thou eatest thereof, you shall surely die. There was no sort of or oh, maybes here or perhaps we might not or we might get away with it or it might not affect me or whatever. So she's, she has omitted God's word, she's added to God's word and she's corrupted God's word. And they are the three basic mistakes that mankind makes when they're dealing with God's word. And half the time, of course, people don't know, but that's what's been happening over generation after generation after generation. And, uh, they've been making a total mess of God's word. Let me read from the amplified 2nd Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 2, if you need to take that down. It says there, and this is Paul's words to all of us, we have renounced disgraceful ways, secret thoughts, feelings, desires, and underhandedness the methods and arts that men hide through shame. We refuse to deal craftily, to practice trickery and cunning or to adulterate or handle dishonestly the word of God. But we state the truth openly, clearly, candidly, and so we commend ourselves in the sight and the presence of God to every man's conscience. So Paul, in those wonderful words there, is telling us we've got the word God's truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. We're not going to omit bits, we're not going to play around with it, we're not going to add bits, we're not going to mess it around and distort it and twist it and make it say something it's not really saying, which the world does all over the place. And there are numerous examples, and let me just quote a few for you without too much detail, of what goes on in the world. You've heard uh, last Sunday and you've heard this Sunday about the prosperity doctrine. You wouldn't think people would fall for that, but they do, of course. And there are churches which have, uh, you know, the, the little things, the cards underneath their tables or envelopes and so they're constantly involved in that. Once any more you know about that. Then you've got to a lot of Pentecostal churches who uh, uh have got a different doctrine about salvation. Now, one of the most famous Pentecostal churches is the Assemblies of God. Most people have heard of that. And going back some years ago, maybe decades ago now, uh, they were doing a lot better in their appreciation of things. Uh But they were never getting it right because I quote here from their articles of faith, what they believe. This is article number seven of their particular beliefs on the topic, the baptism in the Holy Spirit. So this is what is sent to all assemblies of God's people. This is the comment, the baptism in the Holy Spirit. This experience is distinct from and subsequent to The experience of the new birth. Now that is a total lie because the new birth experience is our baptism in the Holy Ghost and the baptism of the Holy Ghost is our new birth experience. There are not separate experiences in the Bible. Nowhere in the Bible is there an indication of two experiences. That you get saved somehow or other, I don't know what you do, but you get this new birth somehow or other mysteriously and then later on you have the baptism of the Holy Ghost. Not everybody has that. Sometimes it's called a second blessing, and only some people get a second blessing. Bad luck for them. Unfortunately, of course, there wasn't even a first blessing because they missed the boat altogether. So that's the Pentecostal deception, and in, in I'd say 99%, unfortunately. Now that makes it sound like that, what we're the only ones. We'll come back to that in a moment. Then there's the easy believism. Uh which goes hand in hand with this really, because when are you supposed to get this new birth experience? When, when you give your heart to the Lord, when you make a decision for Christ, when you sign a card, when you come out the front of a Billy Graham crusade, when you put your hand up, when you repeat after somebody some confession of faith? Well, they're all made up things. The easy believism. Just believe in your heart and you're wonderfully saved without any commitment or any understanding or appreciation. And later on, the Pentecostal people, most churches don't go any further than that, you just wonderfully, gloriously saved. Some baptize you after that in water. Some sprinkle you. Some want to do a whole range of other stuff, and and, and others go on to the baptism of the Holy Ghost. Some do, and then some people speak in tongues, uh, but not. It's not necessary, and it's not applied in most cases. Then there's the righteous doctrine. There are some churches who believe that once uh, uh, you have received the Holy Spirit, whether it's their way or the Bible way, when if they believe they received the Holy Spirit, you cannot sin anymore. You're totally free. You've got liberty. Your life is under grace now. You can basically do what you like. Once saved, always saved. That's not scriptural. But there's large numbers of people who've been drawn into that corruption of God's word. Then there's what's called universalism, where basically everybody gets saved. I mean, most people, without knowing it, practice that. When most people die and they go to a funeral, it's just amazing how many people are up in heaven. Even the cartoons, you know, showing uh, uh, Rod Marsh, the... The cricketer alongside uh, Shane Warne up in heaven there playing cricket in one of the cartoons I saw there. So most people believe that somehow or other you, you go to heaven anyway. It doesn't really matter what you do. And most ministers of religion have got most people going to heaven in their funerals. And sometimes i I've I'm sat in a funeral and saying, are we talking about the same person there? It's unbelievable. The person I knew, uh, in the world uh, wasn't like this, and then they hadn't changed, of course. But we, we, and that's why people are always looking up, you know, they they ride their horses and they touch the, perhaps the thing on their arm because they're looking up to their brother and doing it for him or something. Everybody, universally, everybody, ultimate reconciliation, everybody goes to heaven. Well, that's totally unscriptural. Then there's exclusivism, which is uh, what I alluded to before, where some people say, uh, well, you've got to be in our group or you can't be saved. There's only a small number of people going to be saved, and it's got to be this group, no other group whatsoever. And the Catholics do that. They may not necessarily, the average Catholic may not fully appreciate that. But if you look up the Catholic doctrine, uh, a papal bull, rather curious name, that came out in uh, 1302, said this. Now it's called a Unum Sanctum, one holy, means Unum Sanctum, one holy. It says now, therefore, we declare we say, we determine, and we pronounce, this is from the Catholic doctrine, their book, that for every human creature, it is absolutely necessary for salvation to be subject to the authority of the Roman pontiff. So if you're not subject to the Pope, according to their unum sanctum, you are not saved. You can't be saved. It's impossible. Exclusivism. Well, but there are a lot of other groups also that believe that, tragically, that they're the only group. Some people accuse us of that. Oh, are you saying you're the only group? No, no. What we're saying is you've got to do it the Bible way and you've got to repent and be baptised by full immersion and you need to receive the Holy Spirit and you need to speak in tongues as the evidence you receive the Holy Spirit and that's all one experience. It's not divided in any way and that's called the new birth. It's called being baptised in the Holy Ghost. It's called being filled with the Holy Spirit. It's also determined as receiving the Holy Spirit. So, I mean, there's terminology but it's all the one experience. Nowhere in the Bible has it been separated except when people play around like Eve was sucked into playing around with God's word back in the garden. And she decided that somehow or other she would present it a different way. And that was implanted in her mind by the devil's thoughts, no doubt. So that's uh, clearly another one. And there's one that also that uh, uh, Michael touched on. There are others, but these are just a couple of examples here. It's sort of the, the social welfare social justice doctrine gospel michael touched on that a lot of people spend their life the salvation army the salvation army i understand general booth received the holy spirit and spoke in tongues but they would never even consider any of that nowadays the salvation army when you think of the salvation army do you think of bible salvation no you think about soup lines and uh and causes and helping and providing furniture for someone or housing and so on. all wonderful things but nothing to do with salvation. I mean, as Christians, we ought to be on the alert to be helpful and so on, but not to achieve anything personally for ourselves, but just simply because we've been so blessed by the Lord that we're happy to be helpful in a practical way if we can. But every time we provide a bowl of soup for someone, we'll be while they're sitting slurping away there, we'll be telling them how to get saved the Bible way. We won't detract from God's word even if we're just doing some practical thing. And amongst ourselves, to, we're supposed to love one another with a pure heart fervently, so we'll help people in a practical way too. Of course, you know, what, we, what we can do. But that's not a doctrine and that's not the God's salvation message and so many people get caught up with that and they end up selling chickens and so on you know, and, and having raffles and all the other stuff that they do and that seems to dominate their life and we're distracted by all of that. So... Those sort of things are, are samples. There are many, many hundreds of individual scriptures that people uh, talk about. I mean, one was read today, the love of money is the root of all evil. How many people have said over the years, money is the root of all evil? It's not money. Money is just a piece of paper or a coin. Uh, but it's our attitude towards that that makes all the difference. So there, there are dozens of scriptures like that, of course. You know, and people, uh, uh, misquoted those over the years. Alright, we're back to chapter three, uh, here in Genesis. And, uh, and, and the devil's got a, a more than a foot in here, hasn't he? He started the ball rolling. Uh, did he, did God say you're not allowed to, uh, you know, well, there's some restrictions here, aren't there? Um, and the one said, well, you know what? There are. Yes, you're right. But God hasn't been all that fair to me. And verse 4, and the serpent said unto the woman, you shall not surely die. You shall not surely die. And God said, you shall surely die. So he's showing his true colours here, isn't he? He's finally come out in the open. But he's got he's got someone already on the line. He's been real reeled in now. Hook, line and sinker. Sadly, tragically, this is taking place. For God doth know in the day that you eat thereof then your eyes shall be open, and you shall be as God's knowing good and evil. You're missing out, Eve. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and it was pleasant to the eyes and a tree to desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof. Now again, this was alluded to in the first talk today uh, when um, Michael mentioned about 1 John. And that there again, the three fundamental mistakes that we deal with God's word, we omit, we add and we corrupt. And the three fundamental mistakes we make as people towards life and towards God's word are those three things that are mentioned there as an example of Eve. We've got the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes and the pride of life. They're the three fundamental mistakes that mankind makes in their consideration in their walk in the Lord or their walk in life generally and their interaction with one another and so on. Those are the things that motivate people to do all sorts of stuff. And it motivated Eve. She saw, she lusted and she thought, yes, I am missing out a bit here. Now, uh, Michael read from uh, 1 John chapter 2, and I'm going to do that as well, but I'm going to read from the Amplified so it will sound different. But these natural inclinations and the choices override, in this case, what God said. So we fiddle around with God and his word, and then we override it anyway with our own feelings and emotions and, and various lusts. Let me read from the Amplified. Do not love or cherish the world or the things that are in the world, if anyone loves the world, love of the Father is not in him. Now, we can enjoy lots of things in this world. And the Bible makes it even an indication of that, that we can do that, but not to abuse it, not to do our detriment. And the Bible's making it clear about our attitude here. So it's it's a question of a, our of a, a tied up with these things and caught out, and as Michael said, distracted. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the craving for sensual gratification and the lust of the eyes, greedy longings of the mind and the pride of life, the assurance in one's own resources or in the stability or usefulness of earthly things, these do not come from the Father but are of the world itself. And the world passes away and disappears and with it the forbidden cravings, the passionate desires, the lust of it. But he who does the will of God and carries out his purpose in his life abides remains forever. Pretty straightforward. Unfortunately, they didn't do that. And they didn't mess, they did mess around with God's word. They didn't listen to it carefully enough and didn't respond to it. And then verse um, six, just reading the finish of that. And she did eat and gave also unto her husband with her and he did eat. Now you can argue about You know, maybe Eve didn't fully understand because after all this message was given to Adam in the first instance and, uh, well, hang on, there's supposed to be one flesh here. In fact, the Bible tells us that before this incident took place. And so uh, Adam would have told Eve all about all of this. But Eve didn't take a lot of notice of that. And tragically enough, Adam didn't stand up and be counted either. And that's the end result. And that's been the end result of mankind. Those I'd say six mistakes, you could say. Now I suppose they're two basic mistakes, but they've got six prongs to it. Uh, admission, addition, and corruption of God's word, lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and pride of life. They're the six prongs of the sinfulness of man. And number six, of course, is man under sin in our Bible numeric scheme of things. And there are this, there they are in the initial interaction between God and man. This is what happens. And it's been happening ever since, for 6,000 years, since that particular time. It was very costly then, dreadful, disastrous mistake then. Now, we haven't got a lot of time to, to deal with other things, but I will. Afterwards, he had an opportunity to own up. They both had an opportunity to own up. They could have said, you know what, we got it wrong, God. We didn't listen to you. We should have listened to you. But they tried to justify it. Adam actually blamed his wife. No, she made me do it. He could have said, you know what, I should have been wiser and more determined than that. And God would have given them an opportunity, I am no doubt about that. Because the Lord loves repentance. He loves a contrite heart. He loves someone who's willing to acknowledge their mistakes and errors. And just as well, because you all make mistakes, I make mistakes, some are inconsequential, some are humorous, some are stupid. I mean, one day I went out with a pair. Of, should I say this? A pair of shoes on, but they weren't actually a pair. I, I put my shoes on in the dark, and I went out and I went to visit somebody. And I looked down, and I said, "I got odd pair of shoes on." Uh, well, now I admit that. I'm sorry. I have to admit that. But that's what happened. You know. Now, I, I, I had to say to the person I was visiting, "Oh." sorry (laughs) you know i don't normally do this this is not the way i normally dress you know um so but that's humorous but there are far more consequential things than that even in our day-to-day lives and the choices we make have i got time i'll squeeze this in a couple of things in i want you to go while we're close by to genesis chapter 13 now our our brother nigel talked about this on wednesday night well he didn't talk about this particular set of verses here but he talked about uh, abraham compared to lot and their circumstance. I just want to see a choice that Lot made here, which was a dreadful mistake. Dreadful mistakes can be very costly. In the case of Adam and Eve, it was a deadly mistake. It was fatal, not only for them, but for all mankind ultimately. For sin has come upon all of us, and we had to have Jesus Christ die for us to, to remedy this whole situation. That's a mistake that the Lord at least uh, fixed up for us, uh, in, in a sense, because He made it possible to escape that. Uh, Here is a mistake that uh, uh, Lot made. And you go back to chapter 13 of uh, of Genesis and verse 7. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abraham's cattle and the herdsmen of Lot's cattle, and the Canaanite and the Perizzite dwelled there in the land. And Abraham said unto Lot, Let there be no strife, I pray thee, between me and thee, and between my herdmen and thy herdmen, for we are brethren." And it's not the whole land before thee. This is Abraham speaking. Separate thyself, I pray thee, from me. If you will take the left, then I will go to the right. If you go part to the right, then I will go to the left. And so we see a a wonderful, uh, generous attitude of Abraham here. Abraham was giving his uh, nephew an opportunity to make the choice. And Lot lifted up his eyes and beheld all the plains of Jordan. The lust of the eyes. And they were well watered everywhere before the Lord destroyed Solomon Gomorrah, even the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt, as thou comest under Zohar. The lust of the flesh and the pride of life. Wow, this is going to be great. I've got all of this before me. It'll be great for my cattle and my herds and my people, and we'll be able to establish ourselves here. So his thinking was totally based on uh, natural reasoning natural advantage natural uh, sort of a good stuff that he could uh, uh, gain out of all of this so he chose in verse 11 all the plain of jordan now he knew that was going heading towards sodom and gomorrah he knew that there was uh, the land of the perizzites and the canaanites He knew there was going to be distractions and opposition. He knew the the absolute corrupt nature of Sodom and Gomorrah. That was well known. It wasn't a secret. They were corrupt people and they were doing abominable things and yet Lot chose that. Now, I've heard people say to me, oh, well, if Lot chose the other one, Abraham would have been stuck in this position. Oh, no, he wouldn't have been. Abraham would have remained totally separate. As you read the story, Lot progressed step by step by step by step until he was living in Sodom and Gomorrah. Abraham would never have done that. So Abraham gave him the choice. Maybe Abraham should have said, you know what, I don't trust you, Lot. I'd better take this territory. You take this other one over here because this is not going to be any good for you even though it looks better. And there would have been an argument. Lot would have said, oh, so you want the best stuff, do you? So. Abraham just left it to him. And, uh, and of course, unfortunately, he chose the wrong territory. And so you can read in verse uh, 12, Abraham dwelt in the land of Canaan, and Lot dwelled in the cities of the plain, and pitched his tent towards Sodom. It wasn't long before he was hankering, leaning towards, and getting to closer to the world. So the pride of life, and the lust of the flesh, and the lust of the eyes had caught him out no doubt about that now i'd like to spend a bit more time on that but choices have consequences for all of us better consider better be wise better make the right choice genesis chapter 25 we can make time to squeeze these in this is a well-known one so we don't have to dwell again but um Genesis 25 and verse 27 uh, seven well, you have to leave a bit out no doubt uh, and uh, this is the time, and the boys grew. Now, we're talking about Jacob and Esau here. In verse 27, this is chapter 25, in verse 27, and the boys grew. Uh, so these are the boys. There's Abraham we just read about. Then there's Isaac. And then there's Jacob and Esau, who are twins. Jacob and Esau, born to Isaac and Rachel, uh, Rebecca. And we read here, and after that, sorry, uh, boys grew, and Esau was a cunning hunter and that of the field, and Jacob was a plain man. <laughs> it simply means a, a peaceful sort of quiet, mild-mannered sort of man. Esau was out there fighting the, the animals. Uh, uh, Jacob was inside cooking scones. And Isaac, I'd love to dwell Further, but Isaac loved Esau because he did eat his venison and Rebecca loved Jacob. Well, that should never happen in a family, should it? Playing favourites. So, because uh, oh, my son plays sport and I'm out there playing with him, uh, whereas my daughter doesn't or whatever, you know, and so we find that there's a bit of a schism because we like doing the stuff that we like doing, but as long as our son does it or our daughter does it or whatever. Uh, well, so what happened here? Uh, Isaac was more inclined towards Esau because he, he liked that style of life anyway, the rugged outdoor life and, uh, and his son getting out there killing animals for him and bringing back food for him and so on. And whereas, of course, since uh, uh, Jacob stayed in the kitchen a bit longer, he was able to relate to Rebecca and she was teaching him how to cook scones. Uh, and Jacob sod pottage. So he's in the kitchen cooking and boiling up and stewing up some pottage. And Esau came from the field and he was faint. And Esau said to Jacob, feed me, I pray thee, with that same red pottage, for I am faint. Therefore was his name called Edom, uh, which means red. His name before that was Esau, which means hairy, so he's not in much luck here. He's red and hairy. Um, and Jacob said, sell me this day thy birthright. Now back then it was significant. If you were the firstborn of a family, you did have preeminence. You would have a double a portion of the inheritance. You were the one responsible for a whole range of stuff and the lineage would go through you. And we're talking about a lineage that ultimately ended up coming through Jesus Christ. So it would have been through Esau, not that he understood any of that, but he did understand, though, that he had the birthright privilege of the elder son and he should have respected that. There were responsibilities and privileges that went with that, but he didn't respect it, he couldn't care less, he was living for the day. And so again, you could argue that those three things came in. And Jacob said, sell me this day thy birthright. And Esau said, behold, I'm at the point to die. And I don't think he was feeling so sorry for himself that he felt he was going to die at that moment. But he, said, but he was probably saying, my lifestyle and the way I live and the way I think, you know, I, I, here today, gone tomorrow, a big deal. I won't be able to enjoy any of the privileges of being the firstborn anyway. Uh, I won't be able to get involved with that. I just live for the excitement of today and I'm hungry. And what profit shall this birthright do to me? And Jacob said, Swear to me this day. And he swore unto him, and he sold his birthright unto Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and pottage of lentils. He did eat and drink and rose up and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. What a mistake. A mistake that's caused all sorts of problems down through the ages, I might add. And as a wonderful example, this man had no vision no appreciation of all of his privileged position and it's a lesson for all of us we're in a very privileged position we are the birthright people now we are the sons and daughters of the living god we're going to inherit all things we're going to rule and reign with our savior we're going to be kings and priests for all eternity and uh The the example here of this birthright was just an illustration for the the greater stuff that we're involved in and what we've got coming towards us in the future. So he had no appreciation of his privileged position. And uh, uh, unbelievable stupidity, no doubt. And the Bible mentions this as an example. I won't get you to turn to it because I'm going to read from the Amplified. But in Hebrews chapter 12, the Bible gives a commentary on this. You have to rely on Williams to do it. Uh, Here it is. It says, Exercise foresight and be on the watch to look after one another to see that no one falls back from and fails to secure God's grace. That is God's unmerited favor and God's spiritual blessing. That no one may become a profane, godless, sacrilegious, worldly person as Esau did, who sold his own birthright for a single meal. This is in Hebrews chapter 12. For you understand that later on when he wanted to regain title to his inheritance and the blessing, he was rejected. He was disqualified. He was set aside for he could find no opportunity to repair by repentance what he had done, no chance to recall his choice that he had foolishly made. He blew it. He had his opportunity and he messed up. Now, some can come back from mistakes. There's no doubt about that. God is gracious and merciful. The Bible needs to, is reminding us there are some mistakes that may be irreversible. It may be very difficult to remedy and get right again. Hebrews chapter 12 in another translation says this, Watch out that no one becomes careless about God as Esau did. He traded his rights as the oldest son for a single meal. And afterwards, when he wanted those rights back again, it was too late. So remember and be careful. Now there are many, many other examples, of course, in the Bible. But those sort of, in my mind, summarise a few things. And we're going to go over to the New Testament now in just our concluding verses here to Second Peter chapter 3. And again, this was mentioned yesterday. One of the preacher men uh, uh, read up to verse 13. talking about the end of the age and what's going to happen on the planet and we don't have to look up the bible even nowadays you turn your tv set on and you see that you're you're almost reading the bible you're reading the the prophecies being fulfilled before your very eyes but in verse 14 it says of second peter chapter 3 wherefore beloved seeing that you look at you see these things seeing you know such things are going on in the planet the bible says be diligent that you may be found of him in peace without spot and blameless since we know what's happening You would think this place would be chock-a-block. You would think a lot more people would be very earnest about their walk in the Lord. They wouldn't afford to be casual. The Lord's uh, uh, just about to mount his horse, as it were. He's just about to return and we're fiddling around with a whole lot of other stuff. You think this is the time to refocus and reset and, uh, and regroup and, uh, and, uh, and to make sure that we're understanding, not adding to, not subtracting from, and not to messing around with God's word, uh, careful about our own lusts and their own desires and their own attitude and, uh, what, what we think is important, the pride of life, what we think is going to be our future. That we'd be mindful of that. Doesn't mean we've become irresponsible. We're just very mindful that the Lord's return is imminent. Very imminent. Do what you got to do, but keep one eye on the on the Lord, making sure. Well, I want to make sure I'm ready. So, um, verse fifteen, and account that the long suffering our Lord is salvation. That's a little clumsy wording there, but what it means is that the Lord hasn't come back yet for two reasons. First reason is. Make sure you and I are consolidated in our walk in the Lord. He's given us an opportunity. He's given us plenty of signs, plenty of warnings, plenty of things to see, to identify that people in the Lord ought to consolidate his long-suffering that we can establish for secure our salvation. Make sure of it. And he's given us an opportunity to preach to others still and given them an opportunity to be saved. That's the only reason why the Lord hasn't come back yet. I mean, if you you looked at the world and I looked at the world, we would say, why didn't you come back a little earlier? But praise the Lord, there are people here in this hall today that have only come more recently. And we can thank the Lord that he didn't come a month ago. Some would have missed out. This is going to happen eventually, but the Lord's decision will be perfect, of course. When he returns, it'll be the completeness that he's looking for. In the meantime, he says here, an account that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation. It gives this opportunity for people. Even as our beloved brother Paul also according to the wisdom given unto him hath written unto you. Paul writes about these things. uh, Awake unto righteousness and recognize now is the time. Uh, And 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 numerous scriptures about the return of the Lord and our attitude as it should be at that point. And verse 16, as also in all his epistles speaking in them of these things in which are some things hard to be understood which they are the unlearned uh, and unstable wrestle with as they do are also other scriptures under their own destruction so we've done a full circle here in this scripture here we're talking about what happened back in genesis 3 eve wrestled with what god's word and came up with the wrong answer messed around with it and it brought destruction upon them and the world and the bible saying don't repeat the mistakes of genesis even if some things you don't fully understand don't make it up don't introduce your own ideas and we've got an amazing array of, of ideas. We've got the secret rapture, for example, which you know you might think doesn't really matter. But some people are, have decided because of the secret rapture, there must be some other signs have got to be put into place first. And so therefore they can ease back because those particular signs associated with their view of the, of the secret rapture have not quite happened yet. Whereas we look at the world and we say, oh, it could happen any time. Everything's in place. We don't don't have to have some doctrine which allows us a bit of an escape route here. And so, he, so people wrestle with these things and come up with the wrong answer, of course. Now I'm going to read, um, um, I might read verse, no, I'll come back to verse 17. Uh, I'm going to read verse 15 from another translation. And remember why God is waiting. God is giving us time to get his message of salvation out to others. And I would add, To make sure we consolidate that message within ourselves. Our wise and beloved brother Paul has talked about these same things in many of his letters. Some of his comments are not easy, particularly, to understand. And there are people who deliberately, stupidly, and always demand some unusual interpretation, they have twisted his letters around to mean something quite different to what they really mean, just as they do the other parts of the scripture. And as a result, it is disastrous for them. Disastrous. So we, it's a fundamental message I probably could have mentioned a, a long time ago, making sure that we, we simply abide in God's word. We can't fiddle around with God's word. And sometimes God's word is a little demanding on us. Sometimes it's a bit challenging. That's no excuse to soften the blow. We are disciplined people and we need to be even more so. We need to be dedicated, diligent people. It's not a hard life. I've been in the Lord since 1969. My wife since 68. Others may be earlier or later. It doesn't matter. It's not a matter of time. It's a matter of now is the day of salvation. Now is the acceptable time, what we're doing now. It says, verse 17, Ye therefore, beloved, seeing you know these things before, beware, be on your guard, lest you also being led away with the error of the wicked, you fall from your own steadfastness. Why would Peter write that? Because it's possible. It is possible to fall from your own steadfastness. It is possible to be caught out. It is possible to fiddle around with God's word. It is possible to make wrong choices like Lot. It is possible to sell your birthright. Oh, not deliberately. You wouldn't say to someone, I'm not going to follow the Lord now if you give me a bowl of stew. Doesn't quite work like that. But over a period of time, we don't attach the same significance to it. And we attach a greater significance to other things. And we're more excited perhaps about what we're going to do after the meeting rather than during the meeting. And we're more in tune with other things that we have perhaps set our sights on. There's lots of things we can enjoy. Hallelujah. Joy unspeakable and full of glory in the Lord. The Lord wants us to be joyful people, but he wants our focus to be on the Lord. It says in verse 17 from another translation, I'm warning you ahead of time, dear brothers, so that you can watch out and not be carried away by the mistake, by the mistake of these wicked men, lest you yourselves become mixed up as well. So Paul, Peter, acknowledge that there are mistakes that people make. Hallelujah, the Lord is gracious and we can repent and we get our act together. No excuse to do all the wrong things and uh, keep doing it and keep going to the Lord and say, please forgive me and so on. But uh, we understand the Lord's made available. The blood of Christ can cleanse us from all sin. But The Bible's been warning us to make sure that we understand the word of God and we're going to apply it to our life. That we're happy when the person up the front here applies it to us and gives it to us strongly and uh, determinately. Because that's what we want we want to make sure that we we're very wise before you make choices about your life and what you're going to do and how you're going to do it and so on make sure that you're it's in tune with the word of god that it's not going to cause some difficulties the, the job you take the person you're involved be careful even in the Lord, when you're looking for romantic connection, you, the number one priority, you know, it might be ten reasons why you can sort of uh, get together and so on. The first reason ought to be at least you have to be spiritually compatible. Oh yes, you've got to like the look of her or whatever, or, and, and personality and so on. But 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 if you're going to live forever together, well, at least on this planet for a while, uh, you need to, have to be spiritually compatible. There are other other things. I've got a list or sometimes I read it to people. You know, the 10 questions I wish I'd asked her before I decided to marry her. Um, choices. So let's value and appreciate our birthright. You know, we are incredibly privileged people. Nolene said it. She stops and reflects. We all stop and reflect. And wonder how, how does it all happen? Think about it all. And here we are, serving the Lord and the Lord's loving us and we've got a glorious future. And it finishes up in verse 18. And we need to be content, of course, and happy in the Lord. But grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. To him be glory both now and forever. And all the people said, Amen.